Ironically, Paul speaks to the failure of the Jews in chapter 11. Israel went spiritually bankrupt, belly up, in chapter 11. You remember Romans chapter 9 opens with a list of privileges that God gave to the Hebrew people. But they failed to receive the righteousness of God which is in Christ. Rather than trust in Jesus, they relied on their own good works. Self-righteousness rather than God-righteousness. And it caused them to go spiritually bankrupt. A people who were once elected by God were now rejected by God. And yet chapter 11 also reveals God's reorganization plan. For in the future, all of God's glorious promises to Israel will be fulfilled. In the end, all the Jews will be saved. Well, Romans 11 begins, I say then, has God cast away his people? And here was the big question on the minds of Paul's readers. Is God through with the Jew? And Paul answers the question with his own credentials. Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. See, Paul was a Hebrew and he had been saved. Though God had put the nation on the bench, salvation was and is open to everyone who trusts in Jesus, Jew or Gentile. Paul's argument for God's faithfulness to the Jew is personal. But his second argument is historical and biblical. For in verse 2 he declares, Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. You recall Elijah's depression. He had stood up to 400 false prophets, and yet one wicked woman scared him. You remember, he tucked tail and ran from that evil Queen Jezebel. In essence, Elijah had prayed, Woe is me, Lord! I'm all alone. I'm the only person who's left who's been faithful to God. And sometimes we all feel that way, don't we? That we're the only one. We're the last Christian standing. Yet Paul points out that God always has a remnant of believers, even among the Jews. Paul writes in verse 4, But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. At times, it's a skeleton crew, but God always has his people. He has a remnant. Don't ever think that God has abandoned you. There are more of us than you think. And according to verse 6, everybody who belongs to God is saved by grace. For he writes, And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If it, is, if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Apparently, grace and works are mutually exclusive. In other words, it's either one or the other. That's what Paul's saying. And he's really clear about this. We're saved by grace, not works. Grace is grace, and works are works. Grace and works are like oil and water. They represent two distinct ways of approaching God. Work is about what you do. Grace is about what Jesus did. Two different ways of coming to God. And it's grace that unlocks the door. It's works that slam it shut. Verse 7, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Now Paul divides the Jewish people into two groups. The believing minority and the blinded majority. The believing minority and the blinded majority. He says, just as it is written, and he quotes two passages, Isaiah 29 and Deuteronomy 29, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And here Paul brings up a concept known as judicial blindness. And to me, this is one of the most frightening doctrines in all of the Scripture. You see, it's one thing to be naturally blind. 
That's the result of us being born in sin. But judicial blindness is a specific judgment from God. You see, if you harden your heart to God over and over, God eventually lets you have it your own way. Persist in your stubbornness and God will let it destroy you. It's a blindness that's a result of God's judgment. Paul stresses a similar thought from Psalm 69. He quotes, And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see, and bow down their back always. Notice David prophesied, Let their table become a snare. Reminds me of what occurs every Passover Seder in Jewish houses all around the world. The Seder table is full of symbols that all point to Jesus, vividly so. The hidden matzah is a symbol of his body. The cup of redemption parallels his blood. The Jews stared at these symbols year after year and still do, but they don't see the big picture that's being painted of Jesus. Why? Because blindness has happened to Israel. On one of our tours to Israel, we had a guy named Amnon. He was a fun guy. He was a tank driver in the Yom Kippur War. And the man had huts, but you could tell he was used to driving tanks. He could also tell a joke, which kind of allowed him and I to strike up a friendship. (laughs) I'll never forget one of Amnon's jokes. A rabbi and a cabbie, they die and they go to heaven. The cabbie gets in, but the rabbi doesn't, and he wants to know why. The angel tells him, he says, well, when you preach, you put folks to sleep. But when he drove, he caused his passengers to pray. At night, we would eat dinner with Amnon, and we would share with him our love for Jesus. We took him into the Old Testament, and we showed him how Jesus was the Messiah. It had been prophesied of Jesus. And yet, he never budged. Finally, one night, I asked him, I said, Amnon, what do you think of Jesus? And I'll never forget his response. It broke our hearts. He said, I don't think about it at all. I'm not allowed to think about it. You see, Amnon's rabbis teach their constituency that it is a sin to even consider the Messianic claims of our Lord Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. The joke he told us was no joke at all, really. Today's rabbis are putting the Jewish people to sleep. We've all met people whose unbelief is irrational. All their honest questions have been answered, and yet they still choose not to believe. It's a spiritual blindness, and it can happen. You open their eyes with love and with prayer. Verse verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. Now recall the old commercial, the elderly lady, she falls on the floor, and you hear this high-pitched scream, I've fallen, and I can't get up. Well, the Jews had fallen, but they would get up for, through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. The Jews rejected Jesus, but God was still reaching out to the Jews, even while he was bringing in the Gentiles. Now, Paul introduces a concept called jealousy evangelism. Now, you've heard of various forms of evangelism, Billy Graham and mass evangelism. Door-to-door evangelism, street evangelism, literature evangelism, lifestyle evangelism, even media evangelism. But God created another form of evangelism to reach the Jews, jealousy evangelism. God saved the lost Gentiles to make the Jews jealous and cause them to desire the same salvation for themselves. My last two years playing high school football, yeah, that's me right there. Playing high school football, I was the starting quarterback on our team. And I actually started every single game but one. I opened my senior season with a couple of poor performances. And for the first time in two years, my coach benched me, put me on the bench. The next game, I didn't start. But it was a stroke of genius on his part. For when I finally got into the game, I thought, I'm never going to let that happen again. And toward the end of the first half, I threw a touchdown pass. I ended up the starting quarterback for the remainder of the games. But my benching had supplied a needed motivation. And this was God's strategy with Israel. He benched the Jews and he exalted the Gentiles 
in order to make the Jews jealous of the salvation that the Gentiles had found in Christ. Verse 12. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are in my flesh and save some of them. Understand how much the Jews despised the Gentiles. They hated the Gentiles. They considered them kindling for the flames of hell. There's a joke among the Jews. Why did God create Gentiles? The answer? Somebody's got to pay retail. Anyway. Paul plays on this animosity. Why should the lowly Gentiles be recipients of God's blessings while the Jews stay on the outside looking in? Paul flaunted the salvation of the uncircumcised to provoke the Jews. I heard of a scientist in Naples, Florida, who invented a new way to kill mosquitoes. They're drawn by a trap that emits a tantalizing fragrance called cow's breath. That's right, cow's breath. It attracts the mosquitoes. The man invented a synthetic chemical that mimics a cow's breath. And the mosquitoes love the aroma. You just squirt it around your back porch. Smells like a cow, but it attracts the mosquitoes. Well, we need to affect lost people in the same way. The same way cow's breath draws mosquitoes. Do you live an attractive life? Would your Christianity make anybody jealous? Is there a bounce in your step? Is there a peace in your heart? I hope so. We should be making the folks who don't know Christ jealous of the joy that we have in Jesus. He says, For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Now God set aside the Jews to reach the Gentiles. But when the Jews are brought back, how glorious will that be? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Verse 17. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them. And here Paul refers to the Jews as the natural branches on the tree of God's promises. The Gentiles are now the wild olive branches. And he says the natural branches or the Jews have been broken off so that the wild branches or the Gentiles can be grafted in. And Gentiles with the Jews became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches. In other words, Jews and Gentile believers are both part of the same tree. They're of the same stock. Now Paul is cautioning the Gentiles from getting haughty or feeling superior to the Jews. For the Gentiles have been grafted into the same promises intended for the Jews. You know, it's interesting, before we came to Christ, we Gentiles were called a wild olive tree. You were the original wild thing. Did you know that? The Jews were domesticated by God. They were the natural branches. They were raised under the law of Moses. They were seedlings in God's garden. Whereas the Gentiles were wild shoots. They lacked the moral foundation and the spiritual upbringing that the Jews possessed. They they were grafted in. Verse 18. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. And here Paul is worried about what we could call reverse discrimination. For centuries, the Jews were prejudiced against the Gentiles, but now Paul fears that the Gentiles will return the favor, that they'll look down at the Jews for rejecting Christ. Paul is afraid that the Gentiles will condemn the Jews for their current rebellion, look down on them for being cut out of the tree, rather than realize our obligation to them for being in the stock of the tree and being its foundation. Let's not forget that the Jews gave to the world the Word of God, the Bible. Well, both the written Word, the Bible, and the living Word, Jesus Christ. The Jews gave to the world the Word of God. We never forget, God's Son was a Jew. The Gentiles owed the Jews a debt of gratitude. How could we ever be anti-Semitic? And yet the last 2,000 years of human history has validated Paul's concern. 
Sadly, the Gentile church has been the number one enemy of the Jewish people. I love the quote. How odd of God to choose the Jew, but not so odd as those who choose the Jewish God and hate the Jew. Christians should love and support and pray for and witness to the Jews, both at home and in Israel. Verse 19 addresses the Gentiles. Now you will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fail severity, but towards you goodness, if you continue in His goodness, otherwise you also will be cut cut off. Rather than spurn the Jews, Christians need to learn from the Jews. The Jews failed to persist in their faith. They didn't continue in God's goodness. And if we repeat the same mistake, we may suffer the same plight. Paul is clear. It's not up to us to just have faith, but we have to continue in our faith. You see, belief is not a one-time sign on the bottom line proposition. We have to continue in our faith if we expect to be saved. Otherwise, as Paul says here, we'll be cut off. I once read of a woman in Toledo, Ohio, who found was found guilty of manslaughter. She shot her boyfriend. It turns out, as the article said, it occurred as they were arguing over the Bible. Now imagine what kind of an argument would cause a woman to shoot her boyfriend over the Bible. And though it wasn't reported, I know exactly what the couple was discussing. Once saved, always saved. If that doesn't cause a good fight, I don't know what will. Some of the most hostile, vehement discussions I've ever had with Christians have been over that doctrine. I want to explain what I believe about once saved, always saved. But before I do, I want to also say that there are good people on both sides of this debate. This is certainly not a subject worth dividing over. At the end of our voicing our opinions, we all should agree to disagree. But I want you to know my position. There is nothing that we can do or not do to earn our salvation. We know that. Thus, neither is there anything we can do or not do to forfeit our salvation. The only requirement for salvation is faith. But if salvation is by faith and you renounce your faith or abandon your faith and no longer continue in your faith, and salvation is by faith, how then can you expect to be saved? You have to continue in your faith. Understand, faith is not a date on the calendar. Again, it's not a contract that you sign, then go off and forget about it. It's an attitude that you grow and that you cultivate and nourish and feed. Faith is like a plant. If you starve it, it'll die. If you feed it, it'll live and grow and bear fruit. For the record, I don't believe in once saved, always saved, but I do believe in eternal security. I believe as long as you're trusting in Jesus, you're eternally secure. And why wouldn't you continue trusting in Jesus? He's so good to us. If you want to study this further, you can read several passages. Colossians 1, verses 21 through 23. Galatians 5, first five verses. Hebrews 10, verses 35 to 39. 1 Peter 1 verses 8 and 9, they all emphasize the need to continue in our faith. The perseverance of the faith is taught throughout the Bible. Well, back to verse 23. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. The Jews didn't continue in their faith and they were cut off. But here's the good news. If they turn from their unbelief, they can be grafted back back in again. For if you were cut off, cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? 
A horticulturist will tell you that it's far more difficult to graft a wild branch into a vine than it is to regraft a natural branch that was formerly broken off. God did the hard work of saving the Gentiles. Thus, Paul's saying it'll be much easier for God to bring the Jews back home. I love what C.S. Lewis said about the salvation of the Jews. In a sense, the converted Jew is the only normal human being in the world. Everyone else is a special case dealt with under emergency conditions. Verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. A biblical mystery is a truth that we learn through revelation, not investigation. A mystery is something we would never know about if God had not revealed it. I call a mystery a sacred secret. And in the Old Testament, the church, the Gentile church, was a secret. It was a mystery. God began salvation with the Jews, but he will end, and He will end salvation with the Jews. But today, in the gap where the Jews have been cut off, God is grafting in the Gentiles. Now notice in verse 25, Israel's blindness is temporary. He says, for when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then God will re-engage the Hebrew people. And I believe the fullness of the Gentiles refers to a specific number. As a matter of fact, I believe when the last Gentile gets saved, at that exact moment, wherever it is in the world, when the last Gentile gets saved, the Lord Jesus is going to come in the clouds and is going to snatch, his, snatch away his church. That means if you're the last holdout sitting here tonight, I hope you get on with it, man. You're holding up the party. The rest of us are ready to go home. Well, verses 26 through 32 have prophetic implications. It begins, And so all Israel will be saved. When the fullness of the Gentiles come in, then all Israel will be saved. The church will get raptured. And then God, after rapturing the church, will turn his attention again to the nation Israel. He'll use seven years of great tribulation to purify the Jews. He says in the next verse, as it is written, and here he quotes Isaiah 59, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The, his, the Hebrews will be forgiven. Every Jew alive when Jesus returns in power and glory will put their faith in him and be saved. The Bible teaches that one day all Jews will be Jews for Jesus. And Zechariah 12 verse 10 tells us how it will happen. The Lord says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. When the Jews see the Savior's scars, they'll realize they made a mistake. They executed the Messiah. They'll repent of their sin and they'll put their trust in Jesus. You know, in a sense, Thomas was a type of the end times Israel. You remember Thomas refused to believe until he saw his scars in his hands and in his side. And likewise, this is what will convince the last day's Jews. Verse 28. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, God's promises are like a gallon of milk. Or, I'm sorry, they're unlike a gallon of milk. They, they have no expiration date. A gallon of milk, buddy, you don't want to pour it over your cereal the day after the expiration date. No doubt about it. But God's promises are not like a gallon of milk. There is no expiration date. Israel rejected God's blessings, but God doesn't take them off the table. He still, his promises are his promises. They're irrevocable. 
The gifts and callings of God are still on the table. Rather than for a limited time only, they're available until the end of the age. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through your disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. You know, we've all been in God's God's doghouse, Paul says. Jews and Gentiles. No one of us should get the big head. If we receive anything from God or become anything for God, it's all due to God's incredible mercy. For three chapters now, Paul has pounded out some of the most mind-crunching theology in all of the Bible. But it's interesting to me that he closes this theology with a doxology, with a praise. He goes from head-scratching to toe-tapping. He goes from pondering deep thoughts to praising God in wonderful ways. You know, if we, could all, if we could know all there is to know about God with our little pea brains, he wouldn't be much of a God, would he? That's why Paul closes chapter 11 with a praise. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. In his ways past finding out. If you think you've got God wired, you've got God wrong. You know, his truth is like a river. It's so simple, even a child can stand up. But it's so deep, a theologian can drown. The Bible is a reliable record of God's dealings with humanity. But if you've got to have every question answered, if you need every nuance explained before you'll believe, then you'll never believe. Faith in an infinite God requires a certain amount of mystery. I love the old adage, what's over our head is still under God's feet. And faith in God also requires a certain humility. God calls the shots, not me. Verse 34 teaches us that God has no colleagues. He has no counselors. He has no creditors. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? God has no peer. He needs no help. He owes no one anything. I wonder how many of you have tried to be God's counselor. Have you given him some good ideas? Have you tried to counsel God as to what he should and shouldn't do? Hey, no one is God's counselor. God is in a class all by himself. He calls the shots, not you. God is God and you are not. And this is a problem for the proud, but it's a comfort for the humble. Romans chapters 9 through 11 closes, For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. God is our all in all. Chapter 12. I beseech you, or I beg you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now, for 11 chapters, Paul has been discussing the mercies of God. By this point, we all should be in awe of God's salvation. We are justified and we are redeemed. And salvation is God's to give. He gives it to whomever He wills and as He chooses. And the amazing thing is that He's chosen us. But after savoring such a sweet salvation, it's time for us to realize its ramifications. For in light of God's love and grace toward us, how then should we live? And here's the first step. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You know, the Levitical sacrifice of the Old Testament was a butchered carcass burned on the altar. But in the New Testament, God no longer likes His sacrifices well done. Today, He orders them rare. He wants a sacrifice that's alive. He wants a sacrifice that's still kicking and mooing on the plate. God is now into living sacrifices. Abraham's son Isaac was a living sacrifice, remember? He willingly offered his body to God and allowed old Abraham to bind him to the altar. 
Isaac had no plans of his own. He had nothing he had to do, no place he had to be. He was available for whatever the father had in mind. Once there was a little girl, she was sitting on the end of the row at the church. This particular church passed the offering plate on Sunday mornings. As she took it, she set it down right outside the row, right in the the aisle. And she stepped in the offering plate. An usher asked her, said, honey, what are you doing? She replied, well, we learned in Sunday school this morning that we're supposed to give ourselves to God. And she's right. We are. After all that God has done for us, the least that you can do is to present your body a living sacrifice to Him. As Paul puts it, it's our reasonable service. The first step in living for God is to give your body. The second step is to renew your mind. Verse 2 tells us, And do not be conformed to this world. I love the Phillips translation of this verse. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Resist the pressure to follow the pack, to go with the flow. Remember, guys, toilet paper goes with the flow, not Christians. Rather than blend in, we need to stand out. See, a Christian is either a thermometer or a thermostat. Which one are you, a thermometer or a thermostat? Some believers are thermometers. They conform to the room temperature. They try to be cool or gravitate toward what's hot. Other people dictate the life that they live. But God wants us to be a thermostat rather than register the temperature. He wants us setting it, regulating it. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. For Paul continues in verse 2. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And here's the key to transformation. Renewing your mind. Jesus changes our hearts, remember. But it's up to us to change our way of thinking. It's up to us to put on a new identity and cultivate a new character. I put off the old logic and the sinful perceptions and the evil rationales and the ugly habits. And I put on Christ and begin to live my life like Jesus. To walk worthy of God's mercies. Give your body. Renew your mind. And then third, humble your heart. He says, for I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. As God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. The word soberly means in one's right mind. The idea is objectivity, honesty. It's seeing myself not as others see me or as I see me, but as God sees me. He says, for as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one body. Notice here, Paul refers to the church as a body. You know, if you're an adult of average weight, it's amazing what your body does every 24 hours. Did you know your heart beats 103,689 times in 24 hours? Your blood travels 168 million miles. You take 23,040 breaths. You inhale 438 cubic feet of air. You eat three and a quarter pounds of food. Some of you more, some of you maybe less. You drink 2.9 quarts of liquid. You lose seven-eighths of a pound of waste. You move 750 muscles, and you exercise 7 million brain cells. No wonder you feel tired at the end of a day. Your body is made up of several trillion cells all linked together, all functioning as one unit. And so are we as the body of Christ. We are many members, but we are one body. We're a blend of both unity and diversity, and we all should be working together as one. And each member contributes to the whole by using the gift that God has given them. Verse 6. Having then gifts, differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Upon his death, famous violinist Niccolo Paganini 
He donated his instrument to the city of Genoa, Italy. But with one stipulation, the violin was to never be played. It was for preservation, not utilization. What's well, interesting, when Jesus died, he also gave gifts to his church. But Jesus intends for his gifts to be used and used often. Jesus didn't give us his gifts for us to sit them on the shelf. He wants them to be used. The Holy Spirit has imported, imparted to every Christian at least one of the gifts listed in these next few verses. Now realize, when we talk about spiritual gifts, we're not talking about learned skills or natural abilities. We're talking about supernatural enablings, things that you wouldn't be able to do apart from God's Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 6, it points to three types of spiritual enablement. It speaks of gifts, ministries, and activities. Or I like to call them motivations, ministries, and manifestations. Now, 1 Corinthians 12 lists supernatural manifestations like tongues and prophecy and gifts of miracles and so forth. Ephesians 4 lists four ministries, prophet and evangelist and pastor and teacher. While here in Romans 12, we find seven motivations provided by the Holy Spirit. I believe God puts in the heart of every Christian at least one specific motivation. It's implanted. It's an implanted spiritual tendency that colors our perspectives and our pursuits. And you have one. One of this list, this list of seven. Well, he talks about them. First is prophecy. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Now, we often associate prophecy with foretelling, but its primary meaning is forthtelling. It's been said a prophet was not known primarily for his hindsight or his foresight, but for his insight. Here's a person who speaks boldly the message that God gives him in that point of time. Second in the list is ministry. He says, or ministry, let us use it in our ministry. This is the supernatural knack for helping others in practical ways. This person preaches sermons in sweat. They just love to serve in a hands-on kind of capacity. Third is the gift of teaching. And he who teaches in teaching. This gift helps earthly minds understand heavenly truths. He or she puts the cookies on the bottom shelf. They make things simple. A teacher can take the complex truths and make them understandable. It's been said a teacher's task is to take a room full of live wires and see to it that they're properly grounded. The fourth gift is exhortation. He who exhorts in exhortation. The gift of teaching instructs us what to do, whereas exhortation encourages us to do it. This is the gift of motivation. This is the gift, this is this is a gift that I like to refer to as kind of the spiritual jumper cables. This is what jump starts brothers and sisters with weak batteries. A, a word of encouragement spoken at the right time. Exhortation. The fifth gift is giving. And he who gives with liberality. Now understand, every believer should develop the discipline of giving of their resources to God. But the person with the gift of giving has a special knack for opening up their wallet to bless others and to further God's work. I'll never forget the guy who used to come to our church. And he would give $100 handshakes every Sunday morning. No kidding. You'd walk up and you'd shake his hand and he'd have a crisp $100 bill kind of folded up in a little small rectangle, and he'd kind of slip it to you as he shook your hand. I'm telling you, there wasn't a Sunday that I missed shaking that fellow's hand, <laughs> just in case. But he loved to give. He loved to see people light up and enjoy. He enjoyed the gift of giving. Well, the sixth gift is leading, and he who leads with diligence. Call this gift spiritual management. It's been said, don't agonize, organize. The person with this gift can strategize in godly ways. You know, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40, 
instructs us to do things decently and in order. This gift helps us do just that. And the final motivational gift is mercy. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Mercy has been defined as two hearts tugging at the same load. Again, we should all show mercy, but there is a person that has the gift that just exudes with an extra helping of mercy. Paul's point with all of these gifts is that whatever gift God has given you, just do it. Use it for His glory. Now, of course, folks ask the big question, how do I discover my gift? And I'm going to show you how to discover your gift in the next few minutes. Are you ready? Everybody's going to be able to understand their spiritual gift in the next few minutes. Everybody ready? Let's say a little girl comes barreling through those doors, and she comes running down this aisle right here. In children's ministry tonight, she made a little potted plant for Pastor Sandy. How wonderful. But she's so excited to see me that halfway up the aisle, she slips. She throws that potted plant up in the air and crack, crack, smash it, lands right on the floor in a thousand pieces. Oh, no, oh, no. Now, if you saw that happen, how would you react? Okay. If If your first instinct would be to jump up and look for a broom, I need to get that swept up. You've got the gift of ministry. If you'd pull out your wallet and say, oh, that broken pallet, I can pay for that, and and walk up and volunteer to pay for it, you probably have the gift of giving. If you'd walk up to the little girl and say something like, young lady, be warned. Thus saith the Lord. There'll be many opportunities to stumble in your life. Well, that's the gift of prophecy right there. You're you're giving her a word from the Lord. If your reaction would be to walk up and show her a little clever foot maneuver so that the next time she starts to slip, she can right herself at the last second, you've probably got the gift of teaching. If you think, oh, this is incredible. Why don't we rearrange the chair so this never happens again? Well, you've got the gift of organization, the gift of leading. Or if you'd sit down with that little girl and give her a pep talk and say, okay, honey, don't worry, you can do better next time. That's exhortation. Or perhaps you'd run up to the child and you'd hug her and you'd kiss her and you'd say, oh, let me kiss your little boo-boos, sweetie. You obviously have the gift of mercy. But understand this, there would be seven different reactions among the people in this room in that scenario. And all of them would be valid, God-ordained reactions. See, this is why we need each other, because we all have different gifts. We all approach things differently. A healthy church appreciates its diversity as it works together in unity. And for the rest of chapter 12, understand a particular concept. You see, the rabbis had a teaching style they called stringing beads. I saw one of my grandsons doing this the other day. He was just stringing beads onto a a string, just randomly stringing beads. The rabbis at times would teach in that kind of a fashion. They would just kind of randomly string together truths. And this is what Paul does for the rest of chapter 12. He's stringing beads. Verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. You know, it amazes me how accustomed I can get to a putrid odor. I was always the last one to know that one of our children had a smelly diaper. I mean, the stink could be so strong it'd knock a buzzard off a porta potty. And with four kids, your nose grows immune to those kinds of smells. And you know, the same can happen with sin. We get used to stuff that God says stinks. We allow sin to play on our TV screen, stuff that we'd never approve of in real life. We need to hate the sin and we need to hold to what's good. He says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. 
in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence. In other words, don't be lazy. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. Horse racing fans will recall the famed thoroughbred Secretariat. The Disney movie about him is a classic. I watch it about once every three or four months. In the Kentucky Derby, a one-mile race, Secretariat clocked a faster time in each successive quarter mile. In other words, the horse got stronger as the race got longer. And this is how God wants us to run our race. He uses tribulation in our lives, not to wear us out, but to build us up and make us stronger. Through trial after trial, we grow endurance. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. Did you know the greatest gift you can give to someone is to consistently pray for them? It really is. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. Distributing to the needs of the saints. We need to see needs around us and be ready to meet them. It's been said, love seeks not limits, but outlets. Paul goes on, given to hospitality. I read something recently. A man named John Thomas wrote an interesting letter to Dear Abby. He said this, I'm presently completing the second year of a three-year survey of the hospitality or lack of it in churches. To date, of the 195 churches I visited, I was spoken by someone other than an official greeter only once. And then it was to ask me to move my feet. I hope John Thomas has never visited Calvary Chapel. Hope we weren't one of those 195 churches. See, there's only one thing better than Southern hospitality, and that's Christian hospitality. And that's what we should be showing week after week to the folks who come and worship with us. Paul keeps stringing beads in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. You know, there's a Chinese proverb that goes, if your enemy wrongs you, buy each of his children a drum. That's kind of a funny idea, isn't it? In your blessing, you're actually cursing. But we march to a different drummer. Let's truly bless our enemies. Recall Romans 5 verse 9. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God took the initiative to reconcile us while we were still His enemies. While we were beating the drum of sin and rebellion. But in doing so, He set a precedent. We make... We make friends out of enemies through love. Guys, we make friends out of enemies through love. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. When we empathize and live our lives together, it makes for a thick, fun, rich way of living our lives. You know, it's been said, a sorrow shared is but half a trouble. A joy shared is a joy made double. I like that. Real fellowship will divide our grief and multiply our happiness. Verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Don't play favorites. Don't be biased. Treat everyone equally. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Don't just hang out with people who make you look good or who occupy the next rung on the social ladder to which you'd like to climb. Don't just hang out with the in crowd. Hang out with those that nobody else wants to give the time of day to. Humble yourself. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Hey, be rock solid in your beliefs, in your doctrines, in your convictions. Don't don't budge an inch. But keep your personal opinions flexible and open to new input. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Now, this doesn't mean be a sissy. It doesn't mean be a doormat. It doesn't let, mean let evil people walk on top of you. When men do evil, fight back. Defend yourself and defend your family. But do it with love. Don't fight evil with evil. Fight evil with good. This is why Paul says, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. And he keeps stringing beads. Verse 18, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Hey, at times our stand for what's true and what's right and the other person's opposition 
might make for a workable might make a workable peace an impossibility. You know, sometimes you just can't work it out with somebody. But make sure the problem is not your unwillingness to forgive. Or you're clutching on to what is a mere opinion. Your personal opinion and being right in your eyes is not near as important as living peaceably with all men. Try to do so the best you can. He says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You know, the law of Moses specified an eye for an eye. And do you know why? Do you know why it was an eye for an eye? Because the human tendency is to one-up the person who harms me. You see, punch me in the jaw, and my reaction is not just to punch you in the jaw. My reaction is to punch you in the jaw and then kick you in the shins. I want to get one better on you. This is why God is the only person who can be trusted to dish out justice. He handles the paybacks, not us. We, we can't be trusted with that. We, we have ulterior motives and wrong tendencies. We take it too far. Here's what we should do. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. In ancient times, folks didn't have pilot lights for their furnace. And so if their fire died out, they would go next door to the neighbor next door and they would retrieve hot embers to relight their fire. And they would carry it back on their heads. Coals of fire on their head. It was a kindness. We should be kind to our enemies, not vengeful. Here's the big lesson. You never win by trying to even the score. You never do. Fight back. Assert yourself. Don't just sit there and take it. Hey, retaliate, but not with evil. Retaliate in like kind, and you're no better than your enemy. Let's all take heed to verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good.